Hey. Good morning. Oh, come on, guys. A little bit louder. I know you all had coffee. I saw you eating. All right, there we go. So, where's Eric Brown? He was right there. Oh, no. I hear you. There you go. You can always hear Eric Brown, even if you can't see him. There he is. Okay. Eric admonished me last night to make sure that I didn't leak. I didn't tell any of you where we were going next year. And I explained to him I may have fallen short. A few of you know the secret. Shh. Don't tell. But some of you have been coming up to me over the last couple of days and asking me. So, you know, just come on. Where are we going? Yes, Matt James has done that. Uh, and I don't think I told you, but I may have. Um, but I didn't tell most of you, right? Can somebody testify to that? Get me in good, good with Eric? Yeah, did I tell? No, I didn't. I told you you had to wait. So my job now is to tell you where we are going next year. Woo! Come on, get louder. It's going to be exciting. Did you have a good time here? Did you have an amazing time here? Did you meet somebody extraordinary here? Did you learn something you didn't know before? All right, we're going to do it again. But I'm still not going to tell you where. I'm going to show you. Hit it, Max. Because you guys know we like to send you stuff, I hope we've already done this. Look in your phone. And if it's not there, that it's your Wi-Fi, not me. Everything you need to know about Detroit Comnet 16 is in your phone, or it will be shortly. We can't wait to see you. It has been beautiful here. It's going to be amazing today, but I can tell you, if you trust your community to put on something extraordinary, because what's been most beautiful and most amazing is seeing all of you guys together. It doesn't matter where we do it. Frankly, we could just do it on a street corner and I don't want to run down a city, but you know, someplace not so nice. It wouldn't matter. So we're doing it in Detroit and Detroit is amazing. How many of you guys are gonna be there? 
who didn't clap? Because we're coming to get you. All right, guys. See you soon. Good morning and welcome back. Sean, it is going to be a great party in the Motor City. We're really looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Joanne Krell. I work for the Kellogg Foundation. I lead communications there and I'm a member of the ComNet board. And I am delighted to introduce this morning. First, I want to tell you, recently a favorite uncle told me about a sales conference he worked on some time ago. It had a pretty typical motivational theme, something like dare to be great. We've all gone to conferences that say that. And um, Dick Cavett gave the keynote. And for those of you who don't remember him or don't know him or maybe only know him from his New York Times columns, he hosted a TV network talk show in the 70s and 80s featuring in-depth interviews and notable personalities, sort of the Jimmy Fallon of his day. <laughs> in his um, sales conference keynote, Cavett showed clips of three favorite interviews with Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, with Katherine Hepburn, and with Groucho Marx, and he gave some commentary about each. He set up his premise by explaining that many interviews with famous people focus on what makes them like the rest of us. But Cavett wanted to explore what made his subjects different. He wanted to understand the passion and the drive and insight behind their extraordinary work. And that same question is relevant to our theme today. The fact is, if making ideas move was established science, we'd have learned to move them as journalism or marketing or public policy majors. We attend conferences like this because making ideas move is more than just science. There's art at work. And one key to understanding art is understanding the artist. It's fair to say that our keynote speaker this morning has married art and science to make ideas move on a mythic scale. So effectively, in fact, that he's influenced generations and the course of the nation. As the former counsel and draft speechwriter and personal friend of Dr. Martin Luther King, Clarence B. Jones played a key role in planning the 1963 March on Washington and he had a guiding hand in developing Dr. King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. More recently, he's continued to make ideas move through his books, including What Would Martin Say and Behind the Dream, the making of the speech that transformed a nation, and through his ongoing work as the University of San Francisco's inaugural diversity scholar visiting professor in the College of Arts and Sciences. Clarence Jones will be interviewed this morning by Jonathan Capehart, a star who makes ideas move in his own right. He served as a policy advisor to former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. With the New York Daily News Editorial Board, he was awarded a 1999 Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing. And he's currently a Washington Post columnist, a member of the Post Editorial Board, and a frequent contributor to MSNBC. Jonathan makes ideas move because he calls things as he sees them. And he has the trophies, or depending on your perspective, the scars to prove it. In fact, if you see him at the break, be sure to ask him about his recent correspondence with Donald Trump. <laughs> in the meantime, please join me in welcoming Clarence B. Jones and Jonathan Capehart. I'm so glad you gave uh, 
Dr. Jones that standing ovation. It's for both uh, of us. No, 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 it's for you. Um, I'm going to say something to you that you said to me uh, earlier, um, just before you made me cry. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> I first met Dr. Clarence Jones in New York City when I was on the Daily News editorial board in the 1990s. He was and is a handsome, elegant, unassuming man, unassuming in the best possible way. See, it wasn't until I was reading Parting the Waters, Taylor Branch's Pulitzer Prize winning tome on the start of the Civil Rights Movement right up until the March on Washington that I learned who he was, who he is. In those pages, I learned that the man I'd gotten to know was integral to the planning of the 1963 March on Washington and the drafting of the I Have a Dream speech. The intense preparations for both caused Dr. King and his family to move into Dr. Jones's New York home a month before the event that changed the course of history. In those pages, I learned that the man I quietly admired was the person who smuggled Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail out of the prison earlier that year. It was Dr. Jones, lawyer, counselor, speechwriter to King, who walked out of Chase Bank in New York City with a suitcase stuffed with $100,000 in bail money to secure the release of Dr. King and as many other uh, demonstrators as possible in Birmingham. A suitcase handed to him by Nelson and David Rockefeller in the bank's vault on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> I saw Dr. Jones at Canaan Baptist Church in Harlem not long after reading those pages. And what I forgot to mention was I was reading Parting the Waters a couple of years after meeting Dr. Jones. I went up to Dr. Jones in, in Canaan Baptist Church and I said to him, you're that Clarence Jones? <laughs> I mean, I said this with a mix of awe and incredulity because I had to learn about him in a book. He didn't, he didn't feel the need to tell me. The man to my right not only had a front row seat during one of the most consequential times in our nation's history, he was and remains an active player. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Clarence Jones. Thank you. So, I'm, I, how many of you knew who Dr. Jones was before uh, today, before the various introductions? So, less than half of you. And that's why when I was asked um, if I could think of anybody who could moderate this discussion, I said, me, let me do it. Please let me do it. Please let me do it. And I told Sean earlier I would have walked across country to be able to do this. So Thank Dr. You. Jones, it's been 52 years yeah. since uh, um, the I Have a um, March since on the Washington, March on Washington right. since the I Have a Dream speech, mm -hmm. since the letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. We've seen enormous progress in mm -hmm. that time, President mm -hmm. Obama being mm -hmm. probably the, the biggest mm -hmm. and best sort of mm -hmm. manifestation mm -hmm. of that. But we've also had Staten Island, Ferguson, Baltimore, mm -hmm. Charleston, North Charleston, mm -hmm. Cleveland. Mm -hmm. How would you describe race relations 
today, given those two things? First of all, thank you for that uh, generous, uh, nice introduction. Um, uh, as a generic statement, before I directly respond to your question, we marched, we worked so hard 52 years ago in hopes that those today would not have to march. So clearly the fact that they do means that uh, not that we were completely unsuccessful, but they were, we were not as successful as we would like to have been. The, what's happening today in our country is not only a reflection of some of the things which were not sufficiently addressed during that period of time, but are also a reflection of what I refer to, and I've mentioned to you, is what I call the deer in the headlights syndrome on the part of white America. Um, and this is regrettable. I don't want to take too much time, but I would like to give you a quick example of that, if I might. Is this the, the story? Yes. The AG story? Uh, yes. It's okay, buckle up. Uh, in 1963, James Baldwin, in 1963, the New Yorker magazine uh, published major excerpts from James Baldwin's A Fire Next Time. It created a firestorm in a country literary circles. As a result of that, the Attorney General of the United States, then Robert Kennedy, invited James Baldwin down to Washington to have a meeting with him. Okay. As a result of that meeting, uh, uh, the Attorney General asked if James would convene a meeting of um, opinion makers that the Attorney General would have an opportunity to meet to get a pulse of what was going on in America. So a meeting was convened at which um, James, of course, was there, Harry Belafonte, Lorraine Hansberry, the playwright, Rip Torn, a white actor, uh, Dr. Kenneth Clark, who was responsible for the Dolls test and the, the Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation, uh, Lena Horn, um, a, a, a SNCC worker from, uh, uh, from New Orleans, Louisiana, by the name of, of Jerome Smith, and myself. Um, and it was a very heated, animated discussion. During the part of that discussion, Rain Hansberry said to the Attorney General, you know, Mr. Attorney General, the person you should most be listening to here is Jerome Smith. He had just come back from the front lines in Louisiana. So there was a discussion about how the Attorney General told all of us, and particularly to Jerome Smith, what, how much they had been doing for civil rights, and particularly uh, protecting civil rights workers. Jerome Smith, with tears streaming down his face, told the Attorney General, who was about five feet away from him, Mr. Attorney General, you were full of shit. <laughs> okay? It was, he was red-faced, stopped. But as a reflection, he reacted like deer in the headlights. A deer in the headlights. And Jonathan, you'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to acknowledge that there's been major progress. But on this issue of race and race relations in America, regrettably, still a large part of America reacts like a deer in the headlights. And why, and why is that? Is it because um, we as a nation don't want to 
have the conversation? Or maybe I should say, is it white Americans don't want to have the conversation? Mm -hmm. No, I think it, I think it is precise, I think it is because for a whole combination of reasons in our educational system that there's never been a clear, unambiguous study of an examination of the institution of slavery and its concomitant doctrine of white supremacy and their subsequent impact on generations of white and black Americans. For example, I mean, how can there really be a serious discussion about the Confederate flag? I mean, I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's, it doesn't compute. If you studied and know any, anything about, we had a civil war. The Confederate flag was the emblem. It was the symbol, symbolic emblem of the Confederate states who prepared to go to war in order to ensure that the institution of slavery and its doctrine of white supremacy would remain a part of the United States. 600,000 people, Americans, lost their lives in the Civil War. And so I hear people say, but the Confederate flag is a, a symbol of the great sacrifice. Hello. <laughs> I mean, okay. Slavery and the Confederate flag for which it symbolized was a but a major tarnished stain institution on the history of this country. And the inability of our to grapple, to deal with this is part of the problem we're facing today. Well, let me ask you this. This is something we were talking about before. Um, there was a poll that came out a couple of months ago uh, asking mm -hmm. the American people what they thought of race relations. Mm -hmm. And in fact, mm -hmm. the number has gone up, meaning more Americans feel that race relations are worse than they've ever been, uh, spe specifically since the election of President Obama, as if electing the nation's first black president would erase uh, race and racism. Right. But we'll leave that for another, that conversation for another day. And when I read, uh, read the story, I, I took the glass half full view of this. I would and, agree with that. And that is, talking about race and racism is uncomfortable, it's messy, it's, it makes people angry, it has all of these negative emotions. And so, to me, the rise in the number of people saying that race relations is worse mm -hmm. is a positive thing because mm -hmm. if you know that it exists, you mm -hmm. can't say that mm -hmm. things are, mm -hmm. are better, especially mm -hmm. after Staten Island, Ferguson, mm -hmm. Cleveland, mm -hmm. Sandra Bland, mm -hmm. the, tex the pool party mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. Texas, all of these things. Mm -hmm. am, I, am I wrong in having this interpretation? Am I being short-sighted in having this interpretation? No, you're not wrong. You're not being, being short-sighted. Uh, it's, a, it's a reality that uh, is part of the media, part of our culture. It's just, it's, you're very, that observation is very astute. It's one of the reasons, if I may, but by the way, let me just say that what we're, what we're talking about here today 
uh, uh, Sean and the people who are running this organization, you've been very gracious in permitting me to sit in some of your meetings and so forth. So when I tell you that the issue of race in America is the most critical issue, I, I know who I'm talking to, by the way. Your foundation's here. So I've sat in some meetings, and, uh, and I've heard some things like, uh, well, what should foundations be doing? How should they manage the money and the programs and so forth? I heard some phrases like, and I, and I know the gentleman who said this, and he said it, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing him. He was just stating a fact. He used the concept of, well, sometimes we have to be concerned about being risk averse, you know? And then I heard other discussions about um, um, uh, you know, foundations of management should be prepared to stand up for your core values. So here we are in 2015. And here we are, Jonathan Capehart and I are having a discussion telling you that this is one of the critical issues in your, in your time. So I hope you're still going to talk to me after this conversation. <laughs> okay? But I want to tell you, there's no way in hell you can be risk averse in the management of your money if you're serious about making a difference about racing and And you already know this because I heard in some of your discussions that if you're with a foundation, uh, managing a foundation, or you're advising a foundation about their communications, you have to be concerned about the core values of which the foundation was founded. And there was a part of that discussion which says, well, you have to be prepared to act and stand up for your core values. Hey, the money you manage was made possible by provisions in the tax code, okay? The money that you manage, quite frankly, as I said, was to enable you to do things that will make a difference. And there is no issue in my, yes, there's climate change, so let me, I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, I'm being stupid here, but you know. <laughs> there are major issues of the environment. I was so impressed I think this young gentleman here was talking about the, uh, the, the, found, the foundation of concerns about, you know, about the five states of water and so forth. I, I'm, I, I believe, I'm not saying, well, you know, race is the only matter. That's not what I'm saying. Some of the issues you address are very critical. But I am saying that in terms of real time of what's like the sword of Damocles hanging over our country today, we have got to address this issue of race in America. You know, one of the um, goals of the I Have a Dream speech mm -hmm. was to get the nation to see that right. its fellow citizens were not right. being treated right. equally, uh, either morally or uh, legally. Right. And so could you talk about craft, the, the crafting of the I Have a Dream speech? Was the goal to... Um, persuade? Was the goal to cajole? Or was the goal to do both those things? Well, uh, uh, um, Dr. King and his family stayed in my home and for uh, uh, almost five weeks um, before August 28th. And so I had a chance. It was essentially supposed to be a place for him to have a vacation. But in any event, prior to the March on Washington, immediately the week, two or three days and the day before, 
uh, we had talked about we had talked about what he might say, and um, and and I, he had made notes and I had made notes and so forth. But the day, a couple of days before, in fact, the the night before, at the Willard Hotel, he was upstairs drafting speech, and um, I asked him uh, to come down because there are a number of people who work close with him, like. Uh, um, um, Goddess, I'm getting old now. Um, Walter Fontroy, Walter Fontroy, uh, a labor leader from New York, and Ralph Abernathy, and a professor from Morgan State. And some of them offered advice and said, you know, Martin, when these people come here tomorrow, they're, they're coming here to hear you preach, you know? And uh, others said, no, Martin, you know, they're not really coming here to preach, you know, they really want to come for leadership and so forth. And so there was a lot of controversy back and forth. And um, uh, during the meeting, I made some notes of uh, their discussion. In the interest of time, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to say I made some notes. But anyway, the meeting ends. Um, because I knew some of the issues that he had been most concerned about, uh, that I thought as a kind of um, uh, help, assistance, not because he Dr. King was, hello, one of the most brilliant, extraordinary people. It's not that he couldn't write anything without Clarence Jones. You know, don't come away from thinking about that. That's not at all. But he had, you know, a lot of things to tend to. So I, I, I drafted out on yellow sheets of paper what I thought he might consider using as the opening paragraphs of his speech. Consider using, you know, if he liked it and so forth. But it was really, it was an, uh, like a tool which I wanted him to be able to know that whatever he's struggling with upstairs in writing, that as a safety net, he, he knew he had uh, 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 more about, I don't know how many paragraphs, but several paragraphs of opening the speech. Now, in, that, in those paragraphs, uh, um, uh, months earlier, I just, had an, uh, I just had an experience at the Chase Manhattan Bank with Nelson Rockefeller, but what you didn't tell them is that, you know, they gave me $100,000. But they also, as I was quickly run out of the bank to go down to Birmingham for the bailman, I said, hold on, Mr. Jones, you've got to go over and talk to that man over there, that man over there. I said, what's your name? I said, my name, what's your middle initial? Clarence Benjamin Jones. So he's typing out something. I said, what's that? He says, that's a promissory note. I said, what kind of, he says, I'm a lawyer. I said, I know what the promissory note. It was a demand promissory note. For those of you who don't know the difference, promissory notes in general have a day certain. Uh, I promise to pay on or before such and such a date. A demand promissory note is payable on the demand of the creditor, okay? Depending upon the state, sometimes the states require you to give the, the debtor three months. So I'm signing a demand promissory note. In fact, when I leave, I was so upset about it, I go to a, a telephone because Harry Belafonte had made arrangements for this. I call Harry Belafonte on the phone. He said, how'd everything go? I said, Harry, I got the money, but you didn't tell me. I'd have to sign a promissory note. He says, better you than me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I said, you, you, I said you, got much, you got much more money than I have. Anyway, I run. Anyway, that reference to the, that, that, so in the grafting of the speech, I remembered that. And so in the, in the paragraph, I said, when we're going to assemble here at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial, a uh, hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation, we're like the American people are coming and say to the nation, you know, you gave us, you gave us a, a promissory note. But it was marked, and, we, and a bad check. We gave us a check. 
and was also returned for insufficient funds. So I said, I, I wrote. We, we, we refuse to believe, we refuse to believe that they're insufficient, that they're not sufficient funds in the vaults of justice to honor this note, okay? So I, I drafted all that. So it's, I'm, the next day, the actual March on Washington, I'm standing like 50 feet behind Dr. King, and I'm listening after he gives his perfunctory remarks, and he begins to speak. And I'm listening very carefully. I said, oh my God, he's actually using what I suggested. So I, I said, you know, that's, that's good. I mean, you trusted me and so forth. And so to make a long story short, the first seven paragraphs of the I Have a Dream speech, for reasons, uh, uh, he, he didn't change a sentence, didn't change a period, sentence, to anything, exactly as I crafted. And, uh, in, fact, in fact, Dr. Jones, I mean, if there are things that people remember about the I Have a Dream speech, it's the front, the front portion, right. the promissory note right. vision, and then it's the end portion, right. the I have a dream portion. Right. And if you read the, the news reports from the time, the speech in the middle was sort of criticized as being sort of slow and perfunctory and technical. And then I believe it was Mahalia Jackson who yeah. yelled out to yeah. Dr. King, tell him about the dream, Martin. Yeah. Most people don't know, so I mean, maybe you know, so I'm telling you, that um, most people don't know that um, what you see on television, the speech, the speech, the so-called we celebrate the I Have a Dream speech, that was all extemporaneous. That was all uh, uh, off script. And what happened is that after he got finished the, reading the paragraphs, which I had written and some other paragraphs that he added, Mahalia Jackson, uh, a city who had before sang for him, sang for the march earlier, interrupted him and said, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And so I'm watching him, because I'm standing behind him, and I see him, uh, he, he sort of looks into Behaya's direction, but when she yelled to him, he took the written text, he moved it to the left side of the lectern, and he grabbed the lectern and looked out on all those people. I'm standing behind him now. And I said to someone who was standing next to me, I don't know who it was, what color they were, male or female, but I said, I said, these people out there, they don't know it, but they're about ready to go to church. <laughs> and, so the, and so the rest of the speech was, now Martin, let me tell you something, Martin Luther King, oh, awesome, awesome man. In terms of today's technology, Dr. King could mentally, as he's speaking, he could mentally cut and paste in real time. <laughs> okay? So as he's speaking, and, and, and if you knew the speeches, you, as he's speaking, he would insert material from other speeches that he gave at other time, but it would be done so seamlessly. So he had to use the I Have a Dream speech uh, June 21st in Detroit, Michigan, where, where there was a, uh, a demonstration of 100,000 people. He had used that speech in, in Cobalt Hall, but it didn't get any kind of reaction like it got there because it was the context in which he had used it. I mean, come on. <laughs> and listen, so given what you said about Dr. King and, um, and, and technology, 
It's a great segue into um, my final question before we throw it out to Q&A, and I want to tell you there are going to be two roving mics, and I will try my best to see you. Raise your hand, and when you get the mic, and wait for the mic, just say who you are, where you're from briefly, uh, and then ask your question briefly. Um, so the civil rights movement, the I Have a Dream speech, they both have been sort of the template that other subsequent movements have used. They, they, those two are, are the model, and, but times have dramatically changed, I mean, especially with, with social media. So I'm wondering, I would love to have your perspective on how today's advocates, the folks in this room, can connect with the larger public to achieve their goals, and specifically, are there fundamentals that must be observed uh, and nurtured no matter how much things change? I mean, we've got Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, all these other things that allow people, probably right now, live tweeting what we're saying, whereas back in, in 1963, it might take a few days for the, you know, what happened here to get out to the larger public. Mm -hmm. But that being said, are there still things that must be done no matter how fast technology changes? The, uh, the current Black Lives Matter movement, for example, reflection of the police thing and so forth, the various movements which are occurring today, particularly insofar as they presumably want to make a material change in race relations and conditions in America, unless a, a constituent part of that movement consists of voter registration and voting with all due respect, doesn't matter how many placards you have. Doesn't, have, doesn't matter what placards you have, what you're carrying. If you're carrying a placard as part of the Black Lives Matter movement and you're not registered to vote and you haven't voted, well, that's a contradiction in my terms, in my point. That's a contradiction. <laughs> because why, well, why do I say that? Because power, it's about power. And in this system of government, by the way, there may be a better system of government than there is. I don't know where it is. As I mean, the United States, greatest country in the world, I have any problems with saying that. Power. I had a private meeting with the director of the FBI. It was prompted because he gave a speech at Georgetown University that blew me away. So I picked up the phone and called him. Lo James, and behold, James Comey's speech. What? James, James Comey. Comey's speech. Yeah. So he called me back. And as a result of that, I came down to Washington. I had a private meeting with him. And I talked. We talked about the Black Lives Matter movement and so forth. And at the end of the day, I said, yes, we have to deal with this question of the persistent doctrine of white supremacy among our law enforcement, everybody. But we came away from the both, both agreeing there's only so much the law enforcement can do. There's only so much that the FBI can do. There's only so much. What's going to make a change? It's not so much just you know, talking and talking and speaking and marching. You've got to exercise. You've got to vote because it's about power. It's about political power. And if there ever was a time for America to exercise political power, I mean, can you believe we just had another tragedy of gun? Okay. Can we believe we just had another tragedy? I mean, 
How long are we going to sit and permit this kind of thing to happen without, without the Congress of the United States addressing it? And the Congress of the United States... And the Congress of the United States is not addressing it because they don't feel that they have to. And they don't feel that they have to because they're not getting the heat. They're not getting the pressure from people who have the power to make them vote. So very important that we vote, my brother. Uh, one more question before we, we go right. to the Q&A. One of the things about the Black Lives Matter movement is that they're very proud of being from the people, grassroots, sort of in, in a way like the Tea Party, they don't want any recognized leader. Is that a mistake? Should there be a recognized leader of the Black Lives Movement and some visible structure? Well, let me, let me just say this. I don't, it, it may not, and I'm thinking about it, it may not be a mistake for 2015. The fact that it was important to have, quote, a leader 52 years ago, may not be the same kind of paradigm today. So I'm less concerned about whether there is a recognized leader. I'm not so concerned about that as I am about to the extent that they have some kind of collective, we're all going to act together, a kind of uh, syndrome, kind of uh, mantra, that's okay. I repeat, the run at the risk of being repetitive, leader or no leader, unless they focus on registering and voting. It sounds very critical, but I have to speak. Hey, when you get to be 85, you can almost say anything you want. <laughs> you know? I, I have to say, with all, and I, I mean, I have great, they're like, you know, I have five adult children. I mean, I look at the Black Lives Matter young adults. I said to some of them, we marched in hopes that you wouldn't have to march. So I don't want those people who might hear this or something, that I'm trying to preach to you. No, I respect what you're doing. I have admiration and affection for your, what you're doing. But I am offering some advice that is very pragmatic, that I don't believe can be ignored. Uh, movements that do not focus on the acquisition of power of movements only, are movements only. You have to make a difference, you have to get the levers of power to make a change. And in our system of government, it's registering the vote and voting. I've preached enough, I guess, so I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and with that, we've got, well now, 29 minutes and 52 seconds for Q&A from the audience. I can't see where the roving mics are. Um, oh, there's Tristan. So um, how about, oh, and there's the other mic, I see you. Great, so there's a question here, right here in the front row, but did I see a hand up over there? Yes, so Tristan, can you start with the woman here, and then we'll come, we'll come here. Thank you, um, Dr. Jones, for everything you've done, and uh, my name is Teddy, and I'm originally from Boston, so I, grew up during desegregation there, and uh, as I tell friends, uh, the South had nothing on Boston during this time. It was, um, 
it, it was terrible. But um, my question is, when you're talking about voting and it being the most important thing, here we are in a time where all of these efforts are being made to um, prohibit voting again, which feels like a repeat, um, whether it's North Carolina or Ohio, um, some of the legislative actions that are coming. And so, you know, on that note, as foundations, should one of our highest priorities be voter education, voter registration, um, and trying to counteract uh, some of the mm -hmm. voting prohibitions that are that are coming around. Yeah. What's your answer? Let me let me just say, in 19 in the 1960s, you, all of your foundations collectively, you have a precedent, it was something called the Field Foundation. The Field Foundation um, embarked on a program of underwriting uh, efforts to register uh, people to vote during the 1960s. Uh, the principal benefactor of that was Stephen Currier. Stephen Curry and I think and his wife, they died in a plane crash in the Bahamas. But the Field Foundation was the original template of foundation resources being directed to voter education and registration. Uh, and so they really, that made a difference. It made a difference during the 1960s. So the answer to your, the answer to your question is, is yes, it's important. Now, I should also say I have a, you know, uh, I have a little bit of the legacy of Dr. King really stuck in me, right? So I believe if he were alive, that he would, he would listen to the lawyers and he would listen to advice and people like me. But at the end of the day, he said, you know what, Clarence? He said, you know, we, we, have to, we can't tolerate this anymore. So I believe that he would say, say in North Carolina, he would call say maybe for 250,000 people, I don't know, to surround the North Carolina State House, maybe 500,000, to quietly surround the North Carolina State House and to make known to the people in North Carolina. No business, do you hear what I'm saying? No business will be conducted in this State House until you rescind these laws. That's what I believe he would do, okay? Nonviolent protests. Nonviolent protest, no business will be conducted in this state house until you change those laws. Now, it's always perilous, and I always, I always counsel other people to do what I just did, and I always try to say, we have to be, you gotta be very careful to don't be so presumptuous to say what Martin King would or would not say. But I'm going to express that belief, so that's what I think you should do. And the question here from the young man you mentioned yes, yes, in, in yes. your remarks, right here, second chair. My name is Lamont Guillory, uh, the communications director for the Lore Foundation. Um, my question is um, regarding the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And um, I'm curious, how do we transition to All Lives Matter um, my wife, uh, I'm in an interracial marriage. My wife is white, my kids are biracial, and there's a significant movement, and it's very important that black lives matter, but when I'm having that conversation with my kids or people that are not black, how do we transition that movement to 
say all lives matter? Could you please give well, some I think, on that? Uh, I, thank you for that question. Um, I will offer, before I give my answer, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren last week, maybe earlier this week, I don't remember, last week, gave an extraordinary speech at the Kennedy Center in Boston in which she dealt exactly with this issue. So I recommend that you go online and read the text of that. But in direct response to your question, um, I believe that the Black Lives Matter movement at this time and place is not intended to say that white lives don't matter. It's not intended to say that white lives don't matter. It's intended to say that in the recent period of time, we have looked at the application of law enforcement, and it appears that there's been an unnecessary repetitive use of lethal force against young African-American men, and in some cases, uh, African-American women. So to elevate the importance of that circumstance, these young people want to remind America that black lives matter, that for, and, and, and by the way, white people who care about white lives matter with respect to law enforcement and other circumstances should support the Black Lives Matter movement because unless, listen to me carefully, unless this un, unmistakably racist application of laws against young black men is stopped immediately, guess what? White lives won't matter. There's a question here in the thir third chair, front row. And then I would love to see some hands in, okay, there we go. There's, you're, you're next, red tie. Good morning, thanks for uh, being here. It's such an honor to share this space with you. My name is Jesse Beeson, Public Affairs Director at the Northwest Health Foundation. My question is about um, much of the data suggests that philanthropy over the course of the past 50 years has actually underinvested in black-led and other uh, communities of color organizations, in particular when it comes to civic engagement, especially past any four-year election cycle. Do you think that philanthropy has a responsibility to resource those organizations almost in a course correction about what they haven't been doing over the past years? Or do you think that black-led organizations or, or other organizations of color have to take it on their own and develop their own resources in order to tackle the issue that you addressed, which was uh, uh, the acquisition of power? Thank you. Well, first, first of all, the, the, the um, as I, as I said earlier in my remarks, I cannot think of any more critical issue today. I referred to the deer in the headlights syndrome with respect to race in America. Um, I, I, at the risk of a little self-promotion, is that I teach a course at the University of San Francisco. It's a 15-week lecture course from slavery to Obama. 
And this course this year for the first time is being designed to go online so it can be made available to uh, students other than at the University of San Francisco. And one of our principal focuses in doing that is to make it available to um, uh, historically black colleges and is being reconfigured so it might be useful in the uh, schools in the unified, San Francisco Unified School District. So those of you who were foolish enough to give me your cards, <laughs> you were going to hear from me. And those of you who did not give me your cards, then give me your cards <laughs> so I can tell you what we're doing on this issue. But it is important. It is, hey, remember I said earlier, your foundations have core values? You're not, you, you know, think about it. You want, to, you want to be responsive to some of the issues today? You cannot sit on the sidelines. You have to find a way of creatively, creatively providing funds, supportive funds to those organizations that you can determine in your own, hey, I'm not, su 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 not suggesting that you suspend due diligence. I'm not suggesting that you suspend the traditional, you know, examination that you're dealing with somebody credible as a student of a scam. But once you've made that determination, hey, what are you holding the money for? What's the money for? Okay, of course you need to apply these funds to enable what you've just suggested we do. Of course you must do that. After you provide funds to my, to, to, to the University of San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Red Tie, you're up. Hey, do we have volume? Okay, thank you. Um, well, first of all, thank you for being here. I've learned a lot, and uh, it's opened up an area for me to continue to explore. Um, and you've already partly answered this question, so forgive me if it uh, sounds like a stupid question. I hope it doesn't. But we think about great leaders we've lost. You, you think know, about John, what? Great leaders who right. we've lost. John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Mahatma right. Gandhi. And, you know, um, Kennedy in his life, he did the Peace Corps, he averted a nuclear war, but he made mistakes in Vietnam. And there were things, issues, social issues that he didn't address. Um, Martin Luther King, if he hadn't, if the shooter had missed that day, if he hadn't gone out on the balcony that day and stayed inside the room, and he had lived, what was the unfinished work? How would he have spent the rest of his life? You knew him, and you've partly answered that question, but I'm trying to ask okay. it in a fresh no, no, way. Well, had he lived, had he lived this January 15th, his birthday, he would have been 87. Um, I think I'm fairly certain that he would have devoted his time to the uh, question of, um, of um, poverty and income inequality. Uh, clearly, he would have been uh, focusing on you know, law enforcement, uh, uh, racist or unequal application of law and law, law enforcement. But I think his priority would have been income inequality in the, and getting government and private institutions uh, directed to address some of the uh, critical issues. I said in some discussions here, I said to a, at a private, at a dinner party that uh, um, Sean was gracious enough to invite me to sit in on the Wednesday night. And I said to a nice lady from San Diego, I hope you're still here, um, 
and, and, which I, and which I said rhetorically, I said, can you think, can you believe this? And I say the same thing uh, to the tech people in San Francisco. Think about it. The richest country in the world. The richest country in the world. And you mean to tell me that there's a United States veteran sleeping on the sidewalks in San Diego or under the bridges in San Francisco because there was no housing for them. They have no food. Do you? I mean, there's a disconnect. How is it possible? How is it possible that we can permit this to happen? So you foundations with your, you know, government can do such and such, but you foundations which collectively, by the way, uh, last year, 2015, foundations meaning corporations, uh, charitable, $358 billion. That's which, 358 billion, that's all the foundations in America, okay? And what you, what you gave from that was 2% of our domestic uh, of, our, of, our, of our domestic national product, 2%. So your challenge here, uh, by the way, uh, uh, I, I, I'm sitting, I'm standing back there and I can, you know, it's hard to read something when it's backwards. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, but I, I understand you're having your uh, conference in Detroit next year. Could not, could not uh, agree that that is one of the best places you could hold your next year's conference. Because you know as well as I do, you're either pro part of the problem or part of the solution, okay? And holding your conference in Detroit next year indicates to me that you want to be part of the solution. So I want to commend you on that. Young lady back there, the question, and then we'll come. Hi, my name is Chloe Looker. I work with Environmental Defense Fund, and I just want to say thank you for um, speaking with us today. It's, it's extremely inspiring to hear you. Um, I work with an environmental organization, and although sometimes the connections of racial justice and environmental issues are not super clear, we also know that issues of pollution um, and environmental justice you know, disproportionately impact like communities African, right. of color. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any insights about how big environmental organizations like the one I work with um, can work with communities of color in a more authentic way to face to try and solve some of these issues. I, I, I think the, uh, your question is pregnant with the answer. Um, I, think, uh, I, I think it's a, a, a challenge for, 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 I don't know what particular community, but I think it's a challenge for those organizations that are committed to environmental change and so forth and dealing with the environment, is to find out, to look, to look around in the community in which you serve, uh, geographically I'm saying, and to find out what what, and I use the word credible, what credible community organizations within the African-American community, within the Hispanic community, what organizations that you believe are based upon what they're doing uh, uh, in a way that seems to power well what you uh, uh, are doing. I think it's to be very proactive and to try to find out who those organizations are and to find out whether or not there is their programs, what they seek to do, is compatible with what you seek to do, and um, 
try to find a way of funding them, try to find a way of helping them. Um, question back here, and then there's a, the next question will be from the young woman in the second chair, second row. Go ahead. Um, my, name is, my name is Jared Walker. I'm from the Atkinson Foundation. Um, first of all, obviously, thank you for being here and thank you for all the work that you've done. People like me wouldn't be here without you. Um, thank you so much. So that being said, this is a conversation about a, a, a conference on communication specifically. And in organizing around issues of police um, accountability, all of these sorts of very charged, racially charged political issues, if I had a dollar for every time someone quoted Martin Luther King and told me that I wasn't being very King-like in doing this kind of work, I would be able to solve the problem of veteran homelessness across the country. So how do we, how do we take our message and, and make sure that heroes like Dr. King, that, that, that our message is not co-opted and that people do not continue to misuse his words in a, in a way that is disgraceful to his legacy? What an extraordinary question. Thank you for asking that question. I think it is a uh, challenge. I've, I've also known, met people, I know that some of you are direct managers and, of foundation assets, and many or most of you also dealing with the communication uh, with the outside world about what your foundations do. Um, that's, a, you know, what you just, what you just said is really maybe the juggler vein. Is that how, how, how does a foundation, let's assume that a foundation and its board and its operating management, that you don't have to convince them uh, uh, that their assets should be employed to do, so they're, they're really, as they say, down with the program. You know, you don't have to convince them. But what you may have to convince them and to show them is how they can effectively communicate their message of how they best want to do something. And this is, a, this is really a real challenge. There was a, a Sean, I can't remember, at, at dinner on Wednesday night, George, uh, the fellow? Lakoff, okay, well, you know, you have to, uh, Professor Lakoff, you know, specialize in this whole issue of how you communicate. On a, uh, I teach a course in the graduate school of the University of San Francisco called from uh, the Art of Advocacy Speechwriting. There, there is a challenge. There is a challenge to avoid you not being taken by charlatans and, uh, and, 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 and to enable you to, uh, to feel very comfortable that where appropriate, yes, you can quote Martin Luther King Jr. or anyone else, where appropriate to make the point that you want to make. Um, I, guess, I guess I'm giving you a non-answer uh, by simply saying, um, you know, it is a major issue. What, what, you, what you have said in your question is a, is a challenge. Um, and I think that others in this room who may be similarly challenged as the person who asked that question. I think you really got to think about that because that is an issue. How do you effectively communicate? And how do you communicate so that 
the kernel of what you say is accurate and sincere and doesn't uh, have the feel of uh, inaccuracy or, at worst, hypocrisy. Question here. Okay, sorry. Hi, I'm Angel Fother with the Denver Foundation, um, and uh, it's great to have you here. Um, Dr. Jones, earlier you mentioned um, that we need to put the heat on or sort of force the hands of our um, elected officials yes. to make change. And I, I'm just wondering, um, when I take a look at our uh, a lot of our elected officials, our Congressional Assembly, um, I'm most often just shaking my head wondering if they're going to get anything done. Um, and uh, my question is, when you compare um, the political leaders that you worked with and, and your congressional leaders um, from the civil rights movement to those that we have in office today, what differences do you see um, in terms of our challenges and our opportunities to make them or to work with no, them for change? Well, let's just take the Republican Party, okay? We only have seven minutes. Okay, let's take... <laughs> just want to put it out there. Where, where, where are the Senators Jacob Javits from New York? Or the Senator Case from New Jersey? Where are some of the leaders in the Republican Party who were very active in civil rights. Um, I, I believe that the issue of civil rights is not a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's an American issue. It's an issue. It's an issue of conscience. And I also am aware, so I don't want anybody to say, well, you know, Mr. Jones ought to know better. He's, I'm not trying to counsel, uh, uh, by definition, the reason you're able to get your 501c3 and so forth is that in most instances is that you're going to do this because you're not going to engage in any political activity. I understand that. And I'm not suggesting that you do that. I am suggesting, however, there's, there is sufficient statutory room for you to use your resources to educate your community, to educate the public about those issues and about the persons in their community who could make a difference without necessarily the foundation taking any particular stand that you're opposed or against any particular political official. You see what I'm saying? But I think you really must take the resources to educate you know, they get the, these are the issues, these are the positions that people hold, and you're not, by providing that information, suggesting to them that you should vote for A, uh, not vote for B. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that, I'm really suggesting that knowledge can set you free. All right, we've got probably time for the two hands I just saw. So we'll start with you right here and then we'll go to the lady for the last question. Make them quick. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try and do this quick. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jones, for being here. Uh, my name is Dan Oppenheimer. I work for the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health in Austin, Texas. I, I kind of wanted to ask you a favor, um, which is uh, my wife I don't, and I, I don't have it, my I don't have any money in my pocket. <laughs> uh, 
my wife and I are involved in an effort in Austin to change the name of our kids' school, elementary school, which is Robert E. Lee Elementary. Um, Hello? And I think it might actually make a difference in our effort to exercise power if you could, I mean, if, if you felt comfortable from the stage saying something to that, because my ears perked up when you talked about the Confederate flag. Uh, so if you have anything to say about Robert E. Lee Elementary School in Austin, Texas. <laughs> okay. What you got to say, Dr. Jones? What I've said, if Robert E. Lee, uh, is the Robert E. Lee I believe you're talking about? <laughs> and if he was a general of the Confederate Army, is that the one? <laughs> well, I think that school and its trustees, they need to have a come to Jesus moment. Because, because they know. There's no question about it. They know what Robert E. Lee and the Confederate flag stands for and how dare a public school or any school bear the symbol of this flag which was the flag of the institution of slavery. That's what it was about. I am sorry, there is no nice way of saying it other than saying it as it is. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, whom I like to quote all the time, he said, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but you're not entitled to your own set of facts, okay? What I have just said about the Confederate flag and slavery is not my opinion only, but it's based on a set of demonstrable, empirical, historical facts. The flag of the Confederacy was the flag of the institution of slavery and the doctrine of white supremacy, period. And how dare someone want to defend the flying of that flag. Aside from desecrating the 600,000 people who lost their lives. I mean, I, I mean, please, there is a, I mean, I mean, there is some element of decency and morality, all right? I know why this flag in South Carolina was taken down, because the people in South Carolina, in Charleston, and that state, they were overwhelmed by something they never thought they'd ever have to deal with. And that is the sense of forgiveness and grace on the part of the survivors of the victims, okay? In the face of the most horrific form of massacre, the people, the black people in the church said, we forgive you. Not all, now some people in the church said, we don't forgive you. But the fact of the matter is, it was so clear. It was so clear that anybody who doesn't act like that in the, in the name of or in commemoration of the Confederate flag is saying they want to bring back or they want to celebrate the institution of slavery and white supremacy. And hello, we, that war was fought and lost. Okay? I mean, this is 2015. Get over it. <laughs> um, 
Does that work for you? Okay. Final, final question. Dr. Jones, it's an honor to hear your thoughts this morning. Good morning. My Good morning. name is Grace Maceda. I'm Marketing Communications Director for Helios Education Foundation. But what's um, the name of the foundation? Helios. Helios Education Foundation. My kind of foundation. <laughs> God of the sun. Okay. While we Are you going to give me your card before you leave? <laughs> okay. Count on it. While we have visually integrated schools, there is a significant achievement gap between minority students and their non-minority peers. This is perpetual. It cuts across geography. I'd like to hear your thoughts on how do we address that challenge? Because without equal education, a foundation which propels our students, white, black, gay, straight, wherever you come from, we are not equipping our future leaders, our society, and our country to move forward. I'd love your thoughts on that. And your you question is pregnant. Seconds. Yeah, again, your question is pregnant with the answer. You've answered, you've answered your own question in the question. No, I'm really. I'm sure you will say, give the answer in a much more well, what I'm simply, fashion. what I'm simply saying is that uh, clearly, clearly, the, the way you have described the issue requires the most aggressive, active application of resources to try to address that in your community and other communities. You've, you've described accurately, objectively, an issue and a problem. So the question is, how do you effectively apply the resources to address it? So we're out of time, um, but in closing, um, in talking about the humility of Dr. Jones, so in 2008, Dr. Jones wrote this book, What Would Martin Say? Um, and I didn't read it until August, when I went on vacation and I was looking for something to read on my vacation, and this was before this even came up. And so I pulled it off the shelf, and I, and I was like, oh yeah, let me, oh, Dr. Jones, and I opened it up, and I had forgotten that you had written an inscription to, to me, you? and it says, Dear Jonathan, you may remember um, you may remember me as an investment banking, co banking consultant. I watch and admire you on, often on TV. Hope you take the time to read my book. This is the first of two books. The other one is on the writing of the uh, I Have a Dream speech. I'm working on second now, best wishes, Clarence Jones. When I pulled this off, and I, I, remember, I remember getting the book, and remember, you may remember me. What do you mean, you may remember me? <laughs> of course I remember you. And that speaks to what I was talking about before, the humility of, this, of this, this great man who has done and continues to do so many terrific things, a man who, without the work he, the work he did 52 years ago, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here. We certainly would not be sitting in the same room together. And so for that, Dr. Clarence B. Jones, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I am so proud. I am so proud of this man right here. So proud of him. Sean, oh, thank you.
Sean, thank you. Sean, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to thank, I want to thank Sean and the directors of the Communication Network and, and inviting me here to give me an opportunity to speak to all of you today. Um, there is an African proverb that says that if um, the surviving lions don't tell their stories, the hunters will get all the credit. <laughs> and so I'm grateful that as a surviving lion, you've given me an opportunity to speak about uh, one of the extraordinary members of our pride, for example, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And so I thank you from the bottom of my heart for inviting me. And um, even if I'm not officially invited, I probably, if you let me know, I'm going to come to your... Oh, you're invited. <laughs> okay. You're invited. In Detroit. Okay. Because... You hear, you hear me talk to you, but you should also know the effect you've had on me. I was profoundly moved in some of the discussions that I heard. I've been profoundly moved in people who've come up and talked to me, and people have been very gracious, and so, oh, Mr. Jones, I'm looking forward to seeing you on Friday morning, and so forth. And I look at that person and I say, geez, it must be about 30 years old, 35, they don't know who I am, and so forth. <laughs> but anyway, I want to I personally um, thank you. Um, I, said, I shared with Jonathan, you know, um, the uh, President of the United States uh, had me into the Oval Office and took a picture on February uh, 4th. And, um, and next to the bus of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And uh, there were several people in the room. Then he invited other people in the room. And he said to the people, he says, you know why I've invited Dr. Jones here today? He said, without John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, mentioned a whole lot of other people, I wouldn't be in this Oval Office. And so that was, I meant a great deal to me. So it means a great deal to me that you invited me here today. Thank you. Thank you for coming.